Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. The Breakdown is sponsored by The Soundtrack of America, Made in Tennessee, and researching this episode drew us deep into roots music, including the blues, which is one of seven musical genres that can be traced back to Tennessee. There's no better place to immerse yourself in the blues than Beale Street, Memphis, and you can discover even more about the people, places and events that shape them with Tennessee Music Pathways, a statewide programme that preserves the legacy of music in Tennessee. If you want to visit the places that inspired so many of the records we talk about on this podcast, check out tnvacation.com to start planning your trip. And now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to The Breakdown, the podcast that uncovers the greatest sounds and stories in bluegrass music, one iconic record at a time. I'm Patrick McGonigal, the fiddle player with the Lonely Heartstring Band. And I'm Emma John, author, journalist and all-round bluegrass novice. Today we are finally, finally discussing a record by the father of bluegrass himself, Bill Monroe. And if you're wondering why it's taken us so long to get round to talking about a Bill Monroe record in a podcast about bluegrass music, well, in our defence, it is really, really hard to choose one. When you're talking about life-changing bluegrass records, the problem with Bill Monroe is where do you start? And equally, where do you stop? Monroe pretty much invented this genre. There's not much he did that isn't important. And the most significant of his recordings weren't albums. They were the tracks that he laid down in the mid-1940s and early 50s when he first brought together the musicians that made up the first ever bluegrass sound. In the end, we plummeted for something a bit unusual, an LP released in 1966 called The High Lonesome Sound. It's actually a compilation of songs that Monroe had mostly recorded 10 or 15 years previously. But this album was one of those that helped establish Bill Monroe's own legend and brought him to a bigger audience than the one just inside the South. So um, I guess we should start by talking about what this album is about, really. Uh, To be honest, the songs, without exception, are all about being parted from your loved ones. And, And there are no fewer than four about death. I mean, so when we say high lonesome, it's it is with the emphasis on lonesome, I think. It's almost a concept album in that in that regard. (laughs) Where he's just thinking about separation and death. Yeah. It's cheery. It's a it's a good it's a good Christmas album. (laughs) The funny thing is that the music can be so upbeat and perky at the same time. Like because of the kind of music that he has just invented with this, you know, these driving rhythms that we've talked about so much and it, it doesn't actually it doesn't sound miserable, does it? It doesn't sound miserable 
I think as a general aesthetic, the bluegrass aesthetic in general is not super dark and, and you know, it, it's not brooding in the way that one might think. But I think Bill Monroe on this record and on, on many records, the way that he uses the blues, the way that he uses kind of drive and intensity does convey a certain, uh, just an intensity of spirit that, that I think exists on this record and an intensity that comes from what he would, you know, maybe say the, the lonesomeness, the brokenheartedness, the, 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 the grieving. So here's a bit of context for this, for this album. At this stage in Bill Monroe's career, he was officially Nashville famous, I think it's fair to say. He had been a member of the Grand Ole Opry for two and a half decades. And he'd inspired a style that had been taken up by any number of bands from the Stanley Brothers to Reno and Smiley, Jim and Jesse, Mac Wiseman. Um, so lots of people were playing his music, which was just probably beginning to be known as bluegrass music but he had also seen his own individual popularity as a musician drop off the map because country music and the Nashville sound and Elvis Presley had had taken over on radio and and that was what commercial music was about now so this album in the 60s came about when Bill Monroe really started um, to be discovered by the folk revival. Uh, and that was down to Ralph Rinsler, who writes the liner notes uh, for this album. Um, he was the folklorist uh, who who became Monroe's manager and started getting him bookings on, on the folk revival circuit. And he was the one connecting him with a new audience and essentially kind of relabeling him. And now And this was the second of, of three compilation albums that Rinsler instigated. The first one was called Bluegrass Instrumentals and came out in 65. Uh, so this one, the second one, High and Lonesome Sound, you, you've had all the instrumentals, uh, not all of them, but you've had a selection of of Monroe's most famous and most popular instrumentals. So this is really a, it's a singing album, isn't it? It definitely is a singing album and a twin fiddle album. And a twin fiddle album. In fact, doesn't it kick off with some triple fiddle? Definitely. It's got uh, Charlie Klein. And Merle Red Taylor and Gordon Terry playing triple fiddle on My Little Georgia Rose. To the whole album is actually it's like what we were saying about it sounds upbeat you don't necessarily know that there's a lot of misery to come in. in fact the content of little georgia rose is possibly one of the happiest uh, songs on the album even though it is about a young girl who's been abandoned by her mother weirdly it's actually one of one of the happiest songs Baby, now he's a lady. 
left her, but her dad wasn't around either. <laughs> and it's a weird song that entirely lets the dad off the hook. Um, the dad in this case... That sounds like bluegrass to me. Yeah. The dad in this case almost certainly being Bill Monroe. Um, this this is one of the songs that... I think he used to describe his some of his songs as true songs. And it's believed that when he said that, he meant they were autobiographical. Uh, and in this case... Um, his first biographer, Richard D. Smith, who wrote Can't You Hear Me Calling, he did a he did a lot of kind of deep, deep uh, investigation <laughs> into Monroe's personal life. And he's pretty sure and he's pretty convincing that uh, Little Georgia Rose was written about Bill Monroe and his bass player, Bessie Lee Maudlin's love child. Wow. Yeah, this is this is almost certainly um, about their daughter who uh, was would have been conceived and born while Bill was married to his first wife. Uh, And Bessie Lee, who was both his road girlfriend and his bass player, uh, sort of disappeared off to Georgia um, for a short while in, I think, the late 30s or early 40s. Uh, and had a child and gave her up for adoption. I wonder if she knew during her lifetime who her... Oh, no, she did, and they knew, and Bill knew about it, and um, in fact, she um, she went around in the bus with um, him and uh, Bessie uh, in two, for two summers, 1949, 1950. I want to Let me go right into Letter from My Darling, which sounds from the title like it should be a happy song. Here he is sitting at home getting a letter from his darling. Um, in fact, no. <laughs> <laughs> she wrote the words she knew would hurt me. She said I never could be true. I tried, I tried my So here he is now, you know, fighting for his love that clearly thinks that he has done wrong. And I, I'm i going to side with her on this one based on the last song that we just <laughs> listened to. Well, this was another so-called true song. Uh, again, true life blues. I think this one is supposed to be about Bessie Lee, too. Uh, as, as are other songs on this album. I mean, I think she features quite heavily as the inspiration for some of these songs i think on and on um is also uh, a love song that's supposed to be about him and we should say that bessie lee does appear in her own right on this album because she plays bass on highway of sorrow mm-hmm. um, she didn't generally i don't think she got to record a lot of sessions with him i think she was more a more a touring bass player um and uh, he, he did eventually sort of effectively fire her from the studio um, because he Wow, could... he was just a gem to her, wasn't he? 
I think he decided he could get better session musicians. <laughs> oh. oh, Bill. I, I will say just w- letter from my darling. One of the th- I, that's one of my favorite Bill Monroe mandolin solos. The mandolin solo in that track is just as soon as it comes in, it's like I don't know. It's like a huge boulder rolling down a cliff. <laughs> That is a mandolin solo. It's so heavy on the downbeat. Dang, 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 dang. And then, and then he just, he plays all of his classic licks, but I mean, you can't help but feel electrified by that sound. A Highway of Sorrow is one of my favorite bluegrass songs. Um, And I think part of what I love about it, just like you say, I mean, the Highlands of Sound, this is one of the lonesomest songs in bluegrass, definitely. I mean, Bill's relationship to the blues to me is really interesting because he's such a, he's so rooted in in old time fiddle music. And then Arnold Schultz, um, who was a massive influence on, on guitar and country sound guitar and kind of uh, bill even asserts that merle travis who innovated the travis style kind of alternate thumb picking on the guitar really learned essentially via arnold schultz as well and and bill uh played a lot of gigs with arnold schultz who was a great fiddle player and and apparently great whistler he could whistle the blues and a great guitar player and i think that that sound really was was enormously important for the development of, of Bill Monroe's musicality and bluegrass as a whole. And I think that this fiddle kick is a direct result of Bill Monroe's uh, upbringing with both blues and fiddle tune tradition. So when I was uh, in California last summer and uh, I think during, earlier in that day, we, you and I, Emma, had had a conversation on the phone trying to pick the albums that we're going to do for this series. And I think I was sitting on a park bench next to Lori Lewis uh, at the California Bluegrass Association Father's Day Grass Valley Camp. And I think she overheard us deciding what Bill Monroe record we're going to do. And I, she immediately turned and said, well, you have to do the High Lonesome Sound. And uh, I think that's why we're doing it today. Uh, <laughs> it's all because of her. <laughs> it's all because of her. She's a she's a a, a master of her craft and uh, a real historian of bluegrass, and she knows much about this era in bluegrass music. So really, we should talk to her. We should definitely talk to Lori. You know, I started listening to Bill Monroe uh, in my early twenties. And um, this is the first album that I got that that actually had liner notes. Uh, you know, it's a it's a curated album rather than just one of these collections put out and you don't know who's playing what on anything. And it is so full of the stuff I love most about Bill Monroe's music. It's so full of the blues, and it's um, so full of uh, songs 
written from his own personal experiences. It's like all you know, all these what he calls true songs, and so for me, as a you know, twenty-something-year-old listening to this stuff and reading these liner notes, and being so smitten with bluegrass anyway, it it showed me a path, sort of, through in in the music, to, a way to be to make it absolutely personal. Because that's what this is. That's what really gets me about it. It's like I've always <laughs> I started saying years ago that that bluegrass music could be described as um, singer songwriter with string band, and um, that is really what this album is. A lot of it. I've read this wonderful uh line in Robert Cantwell's book about letter from my darling and he has this wonderful line about it he says the entire song seems to weep yeah yeah it's true that's a it's and the story behind that one is from what i understand it's like he got a letter from Bessie Lee and she didn't uh leave a, a an address no return address so he couldn't write back to her. So I guess he he showed the letter to Jimmy Martin, and they sat down and wrote that song, <laughs> and recorded it, and put it on the jukebox, you know, so so that she'd hear it. I don't know if that's really true, but that's the story that I heard or read somewhere. You know, one of the things I love about his the liner notes, which I had forgotten about, uh, is when he's talking about the blues on the back of the liner notes. And I can't, I'm not going to um, say this with my Bill Monroe accent, <laughs> as most people would. <laughs> but uh, he says, if you feel you've been mistreated, why you still want to sing the blues? You don't want to tell your story to somebody because you don't want to put yourself on him, you know, but you'll sing about it and you get enjoyment out of it. So, he, he, you know, he's saying he's, he's a closed person. He's not going to talk about his hardships, but he will sing about them. He was born into a hard life, and um, he had a lot to overcome, and he developed into a huge, strong, taciturn, uh, uh, ferocious person. What are the kind of things that he had to overcome? He was cross-eyed. Um, he was the youngest of eight, I think it's eight kids, and um, his older brothers and, I suppose, sisters too made fun of him. He used to apparently hide whenever strangers would come around because he you know, they would look at him and make sort of, you know, he felt like they were making fun of him. Um, he, his mother died very young. I mean, when he was young and, uh, he had to, you know, pretty much go to work on the farm all that, you know, didn't, ha I guess he didn't have much of a childhood with, with other kids. Mm. He was sort of left, left on his own. He worked really hard from a young age, uh, really missed his mother. 
um, his dad died uh, also, you know, also when he was fairly young, and he sort of uh, went and lived with his uncle Ken for a while, who uh, was really poor. I mean, Penn just made his living playing fiddle at dances and stuff and was a fantastic musician, but, uh, you know, just lived in a little cabin and uh, didn't have often much food or anything. Mm. Um, and his brothers, you know, went off to work in Chicago and up north and and uh, and that, so they weren't around also to to help out. One song in this collection that really dwells on Bill's early days is called Memories of Mother and Dad and he sings about visiting his parents' graves. It's a real tearjerker. But another interesting thing on that track is the identity of the banjo player because it features a 14-year-old Sonny Osborne who would go on to become a legend in his own right as one half of the Osborne brothers with his older brother Bobby. So while we've been here in Nashville, Patrick has managed to track Sonny down and ask him about his first encounter with Bill Monroe. Well, I was 14 years old and I'd been playing for a couple of years, if you want to call it playing. It was not, I was not a good player. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, Bobby and Jimmy Martin had had a band together at Bristol, Virginia, WCYB. And uh, when Bobby went in service, Jimmy moved from Tennessee to Ohio and was working in Middletown at WPFB and playing in clubs, and uh, he stayed in contact with us. We lived on a farm outside Dayton, and he stayed in contact with us. And uh, one Sunday, he said, would you like to go over to Bean Blossom with me? And Jimmy had already worked with Bill, and uh, he said, Bill's going to be playing over there Sunday, and I thought, if you'd like to ride over and see him, I'd be good. And... uh, I said, yeah. I'll ask my dad, see what he says. And I asked him, he yeah, you can go. And so Jimmy and I went. Well, uh, at Bean Blossom, it was Bill's Park over there, and his band that day consisted of Charlie Klein, and that's all. Just Bill and Charlie. <laughs> Bill and Charlie. And then Bessie uh, was playing the bass, if you want to call it that. <laughs> 
Bessie was playing bass, and Charlie, I don't know what Charlie was playing. And so Jimmy went to Bill before they played, and he said, would you like me to play with you today because you don't have anybody? And Bill said, oh, yeah, you know. And uh, I was just standing over to the side. I was a kid, you know. I didn't, hell, I ain't been nowhere. I'd never, I would been away from home a couple of times in my mm -hmm. life. And uh, <clears throat> uh, Jimmy talked to Bill, and uh, he said, oh, that kid over there plays the banjo, and he said, if you'd like to have me and him come down, and he said, I'd like to go back to work with you. And he said, if you wanted to hire that kid, that's all right, too. Oh, with you, that's all right. <laughs> and that was, I mean, that's, that was it. I didn't. I had never met him. I hadn't shook hands with him or nothing. I'd never. I hadn't spoken a word to him. And then I was a bluegrass boy. So he hadn't even heard you play. No, 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 no. Jimmy said he's he's he can play the banjo a little bit. And I I was a kid. We went to Nashville and and I still hadn't spoken a word to Bill. Not not anything. Nothing. And I'm completely scared to death. I mean. I don't know if you've ever been scared so bad that you're actually your knees really shake, and I, I was that scared. my dad if I could go to work with him on a regular basis and uh, oh my dad was just jumping up and down you know he he just worshipped Monroe and my mom and all of them did you know yeah and me too I did too and uh, he said well yeah if you'll take care of him, make sure, because he's, he's never been away from home. Oh, I'll take care of him. You know what? That was the last of that conversation that was ever mentioned. Wow. And And here I am, away from home, and, and man, I saw things that you weren't supposed to see at 15 years old, 14, 15 yeah. years old. Yeah, traveling with grown-ups. It's bad. Yeah. Bad. It was a bad situation. Really? And, uh, yeah, and I got no help from Monroe. He was one of the instigators. And Jimmy and Charlie Klein. Wow. I mean, it was a, it was a bad situation. <laughs> We should talk about White House Blues. Um, White House Blues, just because it's such a weird one. Why do you think that? Well, I mean, it's lyrically, it doesn't fit with the rest of it. I mean, other than the fact that it's about death. So we should say it's about William, President William McKinley's assassination in 1901. Mm -hmm. It's just an interesting thing to include on the record. Um, because the rest of it is about, you know, mother and dad or death, but usually death about a family member or maybe oneself or heartbreak or infidelity. And then all of a sudden you have 
McKinley being assassinated. I see what you mean, yeah. The other songs are all of a type in that they're very personal. And mm. this one is one of those classic, you know, here's, here's a folk song uh, that's come about because it's, it's the kind of news of the time. Something about it feels disjointed. I love the song. The sound is amazing. The sound is super bluegrass. The, you know, the playing is raging. In the credits, it's credited to Wilbur Jones, which is the pseudonym that Bill Monroe gave himself when he was using traditional music, music that was in the public domain. So it's not his song, White House Blues, uh, had been played before. He probably knew the Charlie Poole version. Um, so why does he suddenly record it in 1954? I've got a mad theory, uh, which I cannot back up in any way. But the year before, he had had his disastrous car crash, which many people have written and talked about. Um, uh, it was the one that, you know, really nearly killed him. Bessie Lee was in the car with him at the same time. He was absolutely smashed up. Um, he, it took him a long time to recover uh, and he couldn't play. Uh, he certainly couldn't record for quite a while. 1954 is pretty much the next time he gets back into, into the studio. Do you know where his crash happened? I do not. It happened near a little hamlet called White House. Oh, okay. I, so it is personal. No, I see. Well, I have no idea. I'm making, I'm just speculating. I have not read anybody say, you know, maybe there's a connection there. Maybe the White House is, you know, a, a phrase that's in his head, but I'm just putting it out there. I like it. I like that. I mean, that would, that would bring it into the personal if it's his kind of roundabout backdoor way of, saying that he's got the White House blues, or at least he's had the White House blues. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think it does really stick out within this collection, not least because it is the fastest, it is the fastest uh, song mm -hmm. played on the entire LP, and it comes after the slowest. Mm -hmm. So it really It's a, it's a real out. showcase. take issue with White House Blues being the most bizarre song and on this LP because I would argue that the one that comes after it, Sugar Coated Love, is much stranger and feels yeah. much more out of place. Yeah. There is it's got these I mean it talks about sugar coated love, but to me it's got these really kind of sugary, uh weird synthetic lyrics everything and it feels really forced the whole metaphor of sugar-coated love feels uh really forced and for that reason and also the sound to me sounds more like a, a nashville country song than well, a bill Monroe bluegrass song i was gonna say this to me seems like the song where he's almost like okay fine i'll try to have a hit <laughs> You know, because I, I, I don't think that mother, Memories of Mother and Dad is going to be a radio hit when this record comes out at the time that everything is just country crooning, you know, l just heartbreak songs and love songs. And then he's singing about, you know, the president getting shot or something. 
So I feel like this is his okay, fine song. If I was going to jump over one song on the record, I'll admit it, it would be this one. That's with Carter Stanley singing the lead. And there aren't very many songs, uh, there aren't very many recordings that exist of Carter Stanley and Bill Munro singing together. I think this is one of only uh, four songs that that were recorded um, with the two of them singing together at the peak of their powers as they were here. Having mentioned Wilbur Jones, can I point out the various pseudonyms that Bill Munro uses on this record? Because the the tracks are credited, a couple of them to Bill Munro, uh, a number of them to Albert Price, uh, and uh, and another to James B. Smith, um, and then obviously Wilbur Jones. These are all the same people. These This is Bill Munro. Do you have any idea why he wouldn't just give himself the credit apparently it was probably to do with the exclusivity of various publishing contracts he had of the different names that appear on on the credits for these tracks hank williams makes an appearance and uh, i'm blue i'm lonesome because bill munro wrote that song with him uh it turns out that at, at this particular stage of their career um they were sort of on the road together bluegrass boys would be sent off as a on a package tour uh, with hank williams at some stage bill munro is playing the melody that he's just working out to you know that he's got in his head uh, and Hank comes along and hears it and starts singing some words over it so he came up with the lyrics for I'm blue I'm lonesome they wrote it together it's interesting that you say that because I this is one of the one of the again it's like an on and on it's a very commonly performed bluegrass song it's just so fun to play and it's it's great lyrically and vocally but now looking over the lyrics with that in mind they are such hank williams lyrics the lonesome sigh of a train going by makes me want to stop and cry like that is hank williams lyric 1a you know makes me want to stop and cry makes me want to stop and cry I think we need to talk about that little that little vocal moment. Bye. Yes, Did you the hear bend. that? Whoa, Bill. 
And is that is that really what we're talking about when we talk about the high lonesome sound? Is does it just all come down to that bend? That is it. That is the most lonesome. Bye. I I I don't even I don't get it. I I I wonder if that's the only take he did that on. Or maybe he, I I should do a comparative analysis of other versions of this song, but that's a very strange moment. It's cool. I like it. It's it kind of is a classic Bill Monroe doing something weird and inventive. He puts the blues in in his singing. He never just sings a a straight note. I mean, he does sing a straight note every now and again. But I mean, he's he's always twisting it and moving it a little bit and 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 nudging it so so that it's not just a recitation of the lyric. It's a it's a reenactment of the of the emotion. You know the way he uses his voice in many of these songs, the um, going from the chest voice to the head voice. You know, um, and and using the the head voice as a sort of a cry. Mm. I mean, I just love that sound. Mm. Um, the real distinction between the two. Um, portion two parts of his vocal range and he uses that i think to great effect winter time is so cold in the mountain the ground will soon be covered white with snow for me um i certainly felt like bill monroe was so much more emotional in his delivery than Lester Flatt, you know, in the singing. It's just something I really gravitated towards. Lester, to me, it's his ease and his comfort and the way he just tosses something off and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't hurt at all. That's part of the attraction. But the thing about Bill is, like, you feel his pain. And that, to me, is far more attractive. When the moon shines on the black mountain And it seems like in heaven we are called I love the stuff that he said, uh, writes about, or that is, he's quoted uh, about on the back of this album, the thing about studying the old-time music and bringing that forward, you know, and using that. And really, you can see the roots. You can hear the roots in his music. And that, to me, is uh, really one of the great things about his music. You hear where it comes from, but you also hear what he did with it. You know, you hear you hear the modern person. I mean, back then it was modern. You know, you hear the modern person, but you hear so strongly these deep, deep, deep roots. You know, that also kind of makes me think about, you know, traditionalism and bluegrass and how people love to be super traditional. It's all traditional bluegrass or, or, or nothing. For a large part of, of the bluegrass community, they just love Bill Monroe. They love traditional bluegrass. Bill Monroe, to me, is in many ways the least traditional bluegrasser and the most traditional at the same time because he was willing to do stuff like that. He's willing to be crazy and take weird, bizarre solos on the mandolin and, 
and push the boundaries all the time and reinvent his sound every year and new bands and new players. And I just think that Bill Monroe's whole modus operandi was one of constant change and constant development and, and, and constant experimentation. And I, I kind of think it's an interesting thing that he is still held up as kind of like the beacon of traditional bluegrass, and yet he is himself always moving beyond the latest discovery. While we're talking about evocative singing, we haven't mentioned Memories of You, which oh, yes. has that famous falsetto note in it that that really kind of, you know, feels like somebody's heart being, I don't know, strangled. Wow, what a vocal performance that is. Yeah, there's a really great description of it in uh, Robert Campwell's book, Bluegrass Breakdown. He has this sentence he writes about the highest note, like a struck match, brightens and burns out. And I thought mm. that's such a perfect description because it does feel like a match flaring just mm. as you've lit it. But there's just one thing that I want you to know. I'll hug you till the day I die. All over this record, this is mostly featuring Bill's high tenor singing. And this is a, an interesting example where the high part is, in fact, the lead. When you say he's a high tenor lead, what does that mean? That means that even though he's singing the top, even though he's singing above somebody else, he is singing the tune? He is singing the, where the melody lies in the in the highest uh, vocal part. So in this part, it's a duet, but uh, I really hear Bill's part as the lead. And this is a sound that I don't think was as common. I think, you know, up until this point and in country music, the lead was usually the middle part. And then for the for the kind of choruses, or if you had a harmony come in, the harmony would be above or and below. But the melody, the lead melody, would stay in the middle part. Did Bill Monroe start doing this because he wanted to feature his voice more, or did he just do it because he'd lost his, you know, his the lead singer who had been his lead singer in Leicester Flat? I would imagine it's all of the above. So he's singing this song with Jimmy Martin, and Jimmy Martin is absolutely no slouch uh, of a singer, but I think it's probably all of the above. I think that he wanted to sing the lead because he's Bill Monroe, and enough said. And, uh, you know, I think it's also a very cool sound. I think it's really a, a, a unique sound, and it, it makes it even higher and lonesomer. And you mentioned Jimmy Martin. Um, he appears... In, on almost all of these tracks as the lead vocalist um, because he was th that's what he was doing in the early 50s before I guess before he became a star in his own right he mm -hmm. he seems to be one of a number of like people who we now think of as absolute star players um, I mean this record includes uh, Sonny Osborne um, someone we've mentioned uh vassa clements jimmy martin and vassa clements at the yeah. point where they're recording 
with Monroe here in the early 50s. They're just like, they're just young Tyros. They're, they're like people who've literally, I think, you know, in most of these cases, they've jumped on buses and to Nashville because they've heard that there's a vacancy. And then they've hung around the back of the Opry when it was at the Ryman. Uh, they've just hung around the back of the Ryman Auditorium trying to get trying to get in to see Bill and, and get to play in front of him. Mm. I think if you did that now, you'd be arrested. Well, Jimmy Martin, How? he, at this stage uh, of his career, he was a part-time painter from the Cumberland Mountains uh, and he came in to replace Mac Wiseman. And Vassa Clements... Uh, before he arrived and started playing with Bill Monroe, uh, he'd been a semi-pro footballer. Wow, I didn't realize about Vassar. Yeah, he's he... so he's so chill. I can't imagine him being a highly competitive sportsman, but makes yeah, sense. He played he's at a stocky college. guy. I think he played at high school, and then he'd and then he'd gone semi-pro. And mm. this. Um, these tracks that he played on, uh, these sessions he played for Decca, uh, for Bill Monroe, were his first job as a professional musician, replacing Chubby Wise in Bill Monroe's band. And I think this also speaks to a really important element of Bill Monroe's personality and, and musicality, which is that I think he really saw himself as a teacher. He saw his band as a place where young musicians could come in uh, somewhat green and he would develop them and and help mold them into exactly what he thought a, a bluegrass musician should be and at this time you know in the early 50s it wasn't like we have the wealth of recordings that we have now that a young player would grow up listening to so if you got Vassar Clements who you know in 1950 would have been 22 years old Jimmy Martin who would have been 25 or 26 these are essentially kids that love the sound of Bill Monroe's music and he would bring them in and I you know Bill Monroe is well known for being very opinionated and very stern and and probably harsh but he took pride in his ability to teach these young musicians and you know I think we owe uh, a lot to Bill Monroe through the people that he taught um you know and it's it, there's there's always two sides to it and a lot of these guys came in with incredible amounts of talent but when you think about Earl, Scru Earl Scruggs, Lester Flatt, Vassar Clements, Jimmy Martin, Sonny Osborne, and the, the, all the different bluegrass boys and what they ended up becoming um, speaks to Bill Monroe's in incredible drive to form a sound. That's the end of this episode. Thanks to our sponsors, The Soundtrack of America, Made in Tennessee. And don't forget to check out tnvacation.com to start planning your trip now. And thanks to Laurie Lewis and Sonny Osborne for talking to us and to all the authors whose books have been seriously helpful, like Robert Campwell's Bluegrass Breakdown and Richard D. Smith's Can't You Hear Me Calling. And thank you for listening. See you next time. Mm -hmm.